That used to be the status quo that I would not know when I was preaching. I just had to always be ready to preach. And um, that was his, I guess, way of making sure Brother Neil and I were studying. And it was terrifying. But it did cause you to study. But today, he sent me a message sometime uh, a little bit before lunch and asked, could I preach tonight? And so I had those feelings come back, you know, the sweat and um, the feeling of being unprepared. And then on top of that, he complimented a couple of my sermon titles, not the sermon, but the sermon titles, and indicated I need to come up with a good sermon title. So I came up, uh, I spent most of the afternoon thinking, trying to think of a sermon title and studying. I didn't want to let him down. The best I could come up with was taboo, but true. But the more I said it, it sounded like taboo, true. And so I don't know what to call it, brother. Taboo, but true. Maybe it could be a title, but I don't know. You come up with whatever you want to come up with. Uh, so hopefully the Lord will bless it and it can be halfway organized and uh, to some degree be beneficial to you. Um, it's probably a sermon that you're not going to hear anywhere but a Primitive Baptist church. And uh, in all the Primitive Baptist churches I've been in, it's not a subject that I hear preached on a whole lot. It's not a subject that is disagreeable to Primitive Baptists. It just uh, is not one you hear a whole lot about. And uh, even though we all most assuredly believe it. So uh, I said uh, the title uh, could be Taboo But True. Uh, If you think about the word taboo, uh, you know, I think there's a little game called taboo. And it gives you a word uh, that you have to describe to somebody. But you can't use every word that you could think of to describe the word. It's a very frustrating little game. And if you say a word, they buzz you. And so taboo are things, you know, if you look up the definition of something that is taboo, something that is taboo is something that's that's really not talked about. It's not spoken about very much. It's, uh, uh, you may say there are particular subjects that are taboo with this person, meaning, you know, you don't really want to talk to them about this, and uh, you want to try to avoid this particular topic or conversation if you can at all help it. It's something that we, we, we try to avoid in a sense, something that we would say is taboo. And there are places in the Bible, there are scriptures in the Bible that a lot of God's people consider to be taboo, meaning like, well, that's just an area of the Bible that we don't go to. We don't go in there. And uh, I've been a master for a long time at being able to skip around scriptures that didn't really harmonize really well with what I believed. And that's what we have a tendency to do with our human nature, is it not? Uh, If there is something that you uh, agree with, you can scrounge through tons of articles till you find some articles to uh, support your belief in something. And you can really dig deep into those articles and cling to them. But you can find other articles that disagree with what you say. And boy, we have a way of just pushing those aside, right? And just I'm just going to kind of ignore that. And you go up to one person and says, well, I believe this. And here's 100 articles that say why. And another person says, well, I don't believe that. And here's 100 articles why. And neither one of them has spent any time reading the other articles, Right. That's just our human nature, that we just gravitate towards we already, what we already believe. And that's a testament to how powerful a preconceived notion is. If you have ideas of what something already means, then it's very difficult to go through there and not find that belief as you read through something, right? So there are certain scriptures in the Bible that we have a tendency to want to avoid because we would consider them to be hard scriptures. We certainly would consider them to be unpopular scriptures. 
And so uh, we, we consider them taboo, not so much among the primitive Baptists, but just in, uh, among God's people in general. But a good, you know, a good thing to think about is this. Just because you believe something does not make it true. And just because something is true does not necessarily mean that people are going to believe it. Right? Um, I could remember back in elementary school, <clears throat> I had a friend of mine, and he believed that wrestling, as far as, you know, the, the WWF or WWE now, was real. You know, those guys that get out there and they bring two by fours and wrapped in barbed wire and chairs and, and smash each other all over the head. You know, he thought that was real. He believed with his whole heart that was real. And he would get, I'm talking about fiercely angry with you if you tried to tell him it was all scripted and fake. He would not, he was not satisfied with their good athletes. What they're doing is difficult to do, but it is a show. He would not have it. But that didn't mean just because he didn't believe it wasn't true, didn't mean it wasn't true, right? So we can believe something all we want to, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. And on the flip side of that, because something is true, even though we would like to think we would always believe everything that is true, that's not always the case. Uh, we can be shown good, hard evidence, maybe scriptural evidence, or maybe there's some evidences in the world of something that, that, that um, testifies to something being true, but that doesn't necessarily mean we believe it. So the relationship between belief and truth can be a little bit tricky sometimes, right? Now, in Romans, the third chapter, I want to read you a couple passages here. It says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God? For what if some did not believe? I want you to listen to this verse here. This is Romans 3, 3. <clears throat> For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith or the faithfulness of God without effect? And he says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. And so what we can take away from that is this. Just because you don't believe something doesn't mean that the promises of God and the truths of God are not true. You can say, well, these folks don't believe, so that makes all this null and void. He says, no, just because they believe, that does not make the truths and that does not make the faithfulness of God of no effect. He's saying, if, if, it's, if the principle that because they don't believe means that this is not true, if that is really reality, that makes God out to be a liar. But the Bible says, God forbid that we would ever think that how we perceive things alters what truth is. He says, God forbid, because God is not a liar, but let the man that says, the way I see things and my perspective and my preconceived notions and my belief is what dictates what is true. Let that man be found a liar. So it's important that we understand the relationship between belief and truth. Now, let's talk about some things that are true, but not really believed. Okay? These are things that are scripturally true, but many of God's people don't believe them. And I, I feel like when you think about 
the differences maybe in denominations and their beliefs. You have to go way, way, way back to a starting point. And when you, if you get that starting point wrong, it's going to be very easy to end up with multiple beliefs. But I feel like this is one of the foundational things to understand for us to arrive at the correct doctrine and belief system, okay? And I want to try to prove it to you by the Bible. And so you have to ask yourself the question, is this going to be fake wrestling to you? Is this going to be something that you say, uh, that you say, I believe this is true. I don't care what the evidence says. Are you going to say, I don't believe this is true. No matter what the evidence says, I'm in a place in my life spiritually. And I got to this place about 10 years ago. I don't care what the truth is. I just want the truth. I don't care if it costs me friends. I don't care if it costs me a a position in society. I don't care what it costs me. I just want the truth because I've spent too many nights laying in bed with untruth rolling around my head. My brain felt like a hamster wheel and I don't like it. I like to lay my head down on my pillow in peace knowing that I have the truth. Okay, so I hope we all want truth. Now, let's look at some scriptures here in Romans That the religious world would consider taboo. There's something you hardly ever going to hear preached on because we try to avoid it. In Romans, the ninth chapter, I want to read a couple passages here to you. And let's start in verse uh, verse 9. We'll start in verse 8. Romans 9 verse 8 says, That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So my question is this, for those of y'all that have spent some time outside of the Primitive Baptist Church, how many times have you heard someone preach on the scripture, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated? I would probably say in my life, none that I can remember. Uh, Maybe there were some and I was just too busy doodling or something, but probably not. Brother Marlon and Sister Ronna could probably testify. They probably never heard one either. You know, you just, it's just something you don't hear in the uh, denominational world because it's taboo. It's just, oh, we just don't talk about that. We just skip along and just continue on with our way and our belief, and we just don't ever really look at that. Okay? But it's the Word of God, and if, I've got, if I'm going to be a preacher worth my salt, I need to preach the full counsel of God, right? So it says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And I heard a preacher say one time, if you want to know what context to put that in. The Lord eliminated any possibility of taking that out of context by giving us verse verse 14. And if you put Jacob have I loved and eat, but Esau have I hated in the proper context, it is going to make people stomp their foot and say that is not fair. That is unrighteousness with God. So God already stomped that out when he said, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. 
So he tells us, if you preach this in such a way that doesn't cause some people to say, oh, no, 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 then you've probably preached it wrong. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What does that mean? Some people will say this, and this, it's, I'm sorry, this is mean, I know, but it is a ridiculous stance on this verse. All right? Some people will say this, oh, that's not fair. That is not fair. All that means is he loved Esau less. All right, let's put that to the test. Let's put that on the scales of fairness. What if it said, I want you to put your name in for Esau and put somebody you love's name in for Jacob. And what if it read like this? As it is written, Tim I loved, but Luke I loved less. Why does that make you feel? Does that sound fair? Doesn't that make it sound like God is still partial? That God loves this one more than he loves this one. So you can't go about it that way and say that's fair. Okay. Some people say, well, it means hate there means love less. And so he still loved Esau, but he just didn't love him as much as Jacob. Well, what would you think of me if I had children that were newborns and I came in here just as a proud as a daddy as I could be and I said, boy, I love that one, but I don't love that one as much. What would you think about me? You would think I was crazy. So that doesn't satisfy me that that means love less. Let me tell you why it doesn't mean love less. He says, as it is written. Well, the key there is where is it written? If you go over to the book of Malachi, I'll flip over there real quick if I can find it. If you go over to the book of Malachi in the first chapter, and you hang with me now, I hope hope to tie all this in. In Malachi, it says this, the first chapter. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. That's where Paul's quoting from. Now, here's the interesting part. Most all of you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, or at least 99.9% of it. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Hebrews had a word that meant hate, and that's all it meant. It meant to utterly hate. Now, if you want to find another place that that word is used to give you an idea of the the level of hate, I'm going to flip over here and just read it to you in Proverbs, the sixth chapter. This word is salne. That's the Hebrew word, salne. And it means to utterly hate. I don't care how you turn it, how you slice it, what microscope you put it under. That's all it can mean because that's in their language. That's the only definition that word could mean. And it says in Proverbs, the sixth chapter, these six things doth the Lord hate. Same word. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that swift that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Now let's put this love less deal to the test. 
These six things doth the Lord love. He just doesn't love them as much as other things. A proud look. There's not one thing about a proud look that the Lord loves. It is an utter abomination to him. A lying tongue. There's nothing about lying that the Lord loves. Not even to the smallest degree. What about hands that shed innocent blood? That's abortion. Is there a part of abortion that the Lord loves? Absolutely not. The Lord utterly hates these things. Do you understand? And in Malachi, it says that Esau have I hated with the same intensity that I hated those things listed in Proverbs 6. Now we know why it's taboo. Right? We live in a world that is, that is, it will not tolerate something like this. We live in a religious world, in a denominational world that will not tolerate something like this. You know, I was looking around today and I found a book that says, um, does God love everybody? And it was a book written to destroy and tear down the idea that God set his love on a specific people. And it was done so in a way to prove that God loves everybody equally and alike. Well, the best you can do with this is he at least loved Jacob more than Esau. So God would still be a God of, being, of, of partial favor, right? But if you look at the Bible and what the Bible says, the Bible is clear the way the Lord felt towards Esau. Now, I'm not saying that makes me feel tingly. I'm not saying that I want to go shout that from the rooftops. I'm just saying if the Bible says it and we're going to be any kind of child of God walking in submission to him, we need to believe it because it's true. Now, he said, I don't know about that. I don't know about what you're saying, Luke. Let's look at another taboo verse of scripture. Let's go over to Hebrews, the 12th chapter for just a minute. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and I'm going to start reading about um, verse five. And it says this, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. It says, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure, if ye endure chastising, God dealeth with you as with sons, for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? All right, you got that? One of the identifying factors of a child of God is whether or not you receive chastisement from God. Chastisement, discipline, is an act and a display of love. And I can tell you that firsthand because my, my parents uh, used the rod of correction on me. And without fail, they said, this hurts me more than hurts you. I understood later on in life what that meant. And I tell my children, this is the rod of correction. And I'm doing this because I love you. If I didn't love you, I would not be chastising you. We can all understand that. He even goes on and says, we've had fathers of our flesh that chastised us. And we gave them reverence because of it. You see, the world will tell you different, right? 
But you know what? Every time my dad whooped my rear end, it made me feel closer to him. And it drew me to him in a super spiritual way because he did it the right way. Okay? The Bible says here, the Lord says, if I love you, I chasten you. And then he goes on and says this in Revelation, the uh, third chapter, it says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. If ye endure chastising, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, what that means is the chastisement of God is upon all of his children. There's not one child that doesn't receive the chastising of God because none of us are perfect. We all deserve it. We all need it. Okay. It says, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all of God's children are partakers of the chastisement, but if you are without it, and it says, and this is a Bible word now, it says, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now I want you to think about that for a second. The word bastard there in the Bible means this. Everybody has a father. There were three Three people that walked in the flesh that did not have a biological father whose DNA was intertwined in their bodies. Adam did not because he was created from the dust of the ground. Eve did not because she was created from the rib of Adam. And Jesus Christ in the flesh did not have the biological DNA of Joseph. But everybody else has a father. But in this sense, a bastard is a person whose father does not recognize or acknowledge them as a son. You understand that? And here he says, if you are chastised, then I'm dealing with you as a son. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. But there are some that don't receive the chastisement of God in the sense that he chastises his children. They'll receive the judgment of God. But there's a big difference between discipline and punishment. We've talked about that before. Discipline and judgment. He says, if you receive chastisement, you are being dealt with by a son. But there are some that don't receive chastisement. If you receive chastisement, it is an act of an evidence of my love. If you don't receive my chastisement, what is the obvious conclusion there? That not everybody is a recipient of the loving chastisement of God that draws us to reverence him well I take it this way if you endure as many as I love I rebuke and chasten if you're without chastisement you're not my son and my specific wonderful love is not upon you taboo right Avoid that like the plague. Don't dare ever talk to anybody about it. Well, I'm kind of tired of all that. If it's in the Bible, we as God's people ought to believe it. And we ought to embrace it. Now, where am I going with all of this? I could give you some more. Let me give you one more just for the fun of it. Nobody's tired and had a long day. John, the 10th chapter. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But ye are not my sheep. All right, now I cut out about 10 verses there, but that's where it's headed. I'm the good shepherd. 
and I give my life for the sheep, but ye are not my sheep, as I said unto you. Is that hard to understand? See, when I first started in the Primitive Baptist Church, one thing that I heard a preacher say that made a whole lot of sense to me is these things in the Bible are not hard to understand. They're very hard to accept, though. They're very hard to accept. That Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I give my life for the sheep. But you don't believe, you believe not because you are not of my sheep. That's hard to swallow, right? That's hard to swallow, especially if all you ever hear is God loves everybody equally and alike. And he is calling out to you like some long white bearded grandfather. Please come. Please come. I want to save you. I want you to be in heaven with me. I love you. That's hard to swallow. Right? But here's the truth. The God that is preached in the pulpits across America is not the God of the Bible. Jesus did not say, I'm a good shepherd and I come to give my life for the sheep, but you're not my sheep. But if you'd like to be my sheep, here's X, Y, and Z, and it's what you need to do, and we can make it happen. He did not say that. Now that's going to leave a lot of people scratching their heads like, well, I would have said it. Well, he didn't say it. Why? Here's why. Because God's love is a specific love. Now, if you don't understand the hatred of God, you will never fully understand or appreciate the love and the mercy of God. Now, you think, well, none of this is fair. Listen, listen, do you want we could stand up here all day and we could talk about the love, the ways that our love is specific. And nobody thinks twice about it. But when God's love is specific, we get pouty. I bet you every single person in this room that has a driver's license and has driven more than 20 miles this past week passed somebody broken down on the side of the road. You may not have even noticed them. But I bet you every single person that can drive, that has driven over 20 miles this week, passed somebody broken down on the side of the road, and I would be surprised if one of you stopped. But I bet if you'd have seen me broken down on the side of the road, you'd have stopped. Because your love would have been very specific for me. But you didn't have the love for those people you were passing. You were too busy. You didn't have the time for them, but you would have made time for me. See, your love was specific right then, right? What about this? I sat down, probably as most of all you sat down before, and you've made a will out. And the will says, when I die, here is where all the things that I have go to. Here is where my inheritance will be distributed. And you know, I chose specific people to get that. Nobody fusses at me about that. But my love is specific. It goes to my children. It doesn't go to your children. I love your children, but they go to my children. Because it's mine to give to whom I will. And not one single person fusses at me about it. Not one. Our love is very specific. We don't just willy-nilly throw it out universally for everybody to come and, and, and hang under the shade tree of Luke's love. We, we're very, very specific with it. And so are you. Now, I've heard people say before about marriage. 
Nobody stomped their foot and got mad at me because I chose Tiffany and Tiffany chose me. Nobody, nobody did. So why do we stomp our foot when somebody says God's love is also specific? It doesn't make sense. Another thing that doesn't make sense to me is, is, is you'll hear this. I don't think it's right and I don't think it's fair that God can choose or reject a person. But yet, you think it's fair that you can choose or reject God? Now, who's been made God there? You understand? There's a lot of holes in that belief. Because you didn't start out way back here and get this part right. And here's where I'm going with this. Some people will say this. Well, Luke, I've heard this before many times. Luke, I don't believe any of that. I was made in God's image. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. There are, there are certain aspects of us from the, yes, that are made in God's image. Maybe something physical about us. Maybe two legs, two arms, two hands, two feet, a head and a neck. There's some, there are certain aspects of us that are made in God's image. But you can't throw down the gauntlet and say that's not the way it is because I was made in God's image because the Bible says you weren't. The Bible says you were made in Adam's likeness. You see, Adam was made in God's image. But when Adam fell in the garden and Adam had a son, it said that son was made in Adam's likeness. And the Bible says that we were together, become, we have together become unprofitable. That means we all did it at one time together. If we do something together, it doesn't mean you do it at 2 o'clock and I do it at 5 o'clock. It means we both do it at the same time. If we together became unprofitable, it was at the same time and it was when Adam took of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We became something that God did not create us to be. And so when Adam sinned, we came from Adam, so we took on that corrupt nature. We're made in Adam's likeness. If that's not true, why in the world does the Bible say that we must be conformed to the image of His Son? If I have to be conformed to the image of something, then I can't already be that image. You understand? I found three places in the Bible where it talks about the image of God. One of them is when He created Adam. Another is when He referenced Adam. And another is when He references Christ. It never refers to our fallen, sorry, wicked human state. You say, well, I was made in the image of God. I'm sorry, God love you, but you're wrong. But praise be to God that we're going to be conformed back to the image that He intended us to be to start with through Jesus Christ. Now, where am I going with this? I've got to get somewhere, right? <clears throat> when the Bible says that we had all together become unprofitable, that word unprofitable means useless. It means fit for nothing. Now, in our sinful state, without the Spirit of God dwelling in us, that's exactly what we are. Unprofitable, useless, and fit for nothing as far as spiritual things are concerned. And certainly not an appropriate candidate to stand in the glory of God the Father in heaven. You see, it says we were useless and fit for nothing. Now hold that thought. Go over to Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, for just a minute. 
Y'all forgive me if this is uh, not very organized, but uh, I threw it together kind of at the last minute. Have you ever heard somebody fuss about Israel in the Old Testament? Now, I'm not talking about all this political. I'm just talking about have you ever heard somebody walk around huffing and puffing like, ah, what about the Perizzites? What about the Hittites or the Jebusites? What about them? You ever heard that? No, never heard it. I'll give you a dollar if you've heard it, but I bet you've never heard it. To prove to you that God's love is a specific love. Let's look at the Old Testament for a second. Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter. Verse 2, it says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar, that word peculiar there means a possessed treasure. And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a possessed treasure unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Nobody has a problem with that, right? That's not real taboo, because that's Old Testament, right? What does the Old Testament do? It points us to Christ in the New Testament, right? The Bible says you're a chosen, possessed treasure to me. And I have a feeling and affection for you above all the other nations. So much so that I will put my blessings and my privileges upon you and not do it to these other nations because you're special to me. Do you think God's love is specific? It sure looks like it to me. God did not say, here I am, God Almighty, Jehovah God. I'm standing up on Mount Sinai calling all nations to me and every nation that comes to me and hears me and believes what I'm saying and wants these laws and wants them to live by, come on down. He didn't say that. He said, you are my nation. I'm choosing you and I'm putting my love and affection and blessing and privileges and deliverance upon you. You see, God's love is a very specific love. Now, we've said before, going back to Jacob, have I loved and Esau, have I hated? I believe the Bible teaches, and I hope I've been able to prove it to you tonight, that there's an aspect of God that hates the wicked. He hated Esau. But what's mind boggling is that he chose to love Jacob. Because Jacob was no prize. If you read about Jacob early on, it makes you want to beat him up. It does. He was sneaky. I mean, if I'd have been Esau, I'd have been madder than Esau. Jacob was sneaky. He was a trickster. He was a liar. He took advantage of his blind father. He was not somebody I would want to hang around or my family to hang around. But God chose to put his specific love on him in the same way he chose to put his specific love on Israel. If we're going to complain that God chose a family to live with him in heaven, let's be consistent and let's complain about him choosing Israel to be a peculiar people. 
Let's complain about him setting them above all the other nations. Here's the thing. Why would God choose to set his specific love on Jacob or Luke or Tiffany or Jim or Tim? Why? The Bible tells us back in Romans, the ninth chapter, it's not because he looked down through time and said, oh, Luke and Jim, Tiffany, Tim, they're going to do pretty good. I'll take them. The Bible says before either one of them had done any works, but according to the uh, purpose of election that it might stand, he said, the elder shall serve the younger. This is before either one of these guys ever did anything. The Lord said his specific love. It is not based on race. It is not based on how good you are and what you do. It is not based on what language you speak, how much money you have. It is not based on anything. The only thing I can tell you I know that it's based on is that it was according to his good pleasure and his will. That's the only thing I know. I can't understand the mind of God. Now, somebody told me, I think it was Tiffany said, I think we understand the mind of God is pride at, his, at its best. I don't know why this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one, but God knows and it was perfect and it pleased him. Amen. Now, God looked at us and we were all Esau. We were all together useless and worthless and unable in our fallen nature to come to him. But yet he said, according to my good pleasure, I'm going to make you my own. And he made a chosen, peculiar, possessed treasure. And he brought them to himself. And he set his love on those people. And those people will be with him forever and eternity because of the price that his son paid on the cross. The Bible says this, we love him because why? Because he first loved us. You see, the Lord set his love on us before the foundation of the world. And there comes a point in our life when he does something in our life, we call it the new birth, and we have a feeling for him and we're drawn to him. But not everybody has that. But God's people have it. And it says the reason you love him is not because you're intelligent. It's not because you were lucky enough to be raised in a godly home. It's not because you're smart enough to understand what the preacher was saying or the missionary was saying. You love him and your heart burns within you because of him, because he loved you first. Oh, but Brother Luke, I don't know. Here we go. Here we go. We go back to this. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know how else to prove to you that it's true that God is not sitting out there saying, I love everybody equal and alike. But God is saying, I've got a specific love. You are my creation, and I can do with my inheritance what I will. Amen. And we say, well, what about all those people that he didn't set his love on? Number one, let's not forget that the people he did set his love on was a multitude that no man can number. No calculator can calculate. There's not enough exponents or exponential places to, to, to put this number where we can comprehend it. It's not a small number. It's not just a few. It's a multitude that no man can number, right? God left these people that he didn't put his specific love on in the state they put them own selves in. God did not create them or predestinate them to go to hell. He simply looked at a mass of people 
that were Esau's and hated him and were altogether useless and not fit for anything in his kingdom. And he said, because I'm God and I've got the authority and it is mine inheritance to give. I'm setting my love on a multitude that no man can number. And just like I made Israel a peculiar chosen nation, I'm making this a peculiar chosen family. And they're mine. One of the kids asked me the other day about the, those that he did not set his love on. And I told him, I said, you know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us they don't want his love. The Bible says they don't want an option to opt in. The Bible says if given the chance to escape out of hell, they would gnaw their tongues in pain before they bowed down to it. He said they don't feel left out. They're right where they want to be. And that's right where we would want to be. And we would rather suffer in hell than bow down to the Lord. You remember the rich man and Lazarus? When the rich man is in hell and Lazarus, the poor man is in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man never, ever says, oh God, deliver me from this evil. I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'm repentant. You are holy. You are God. I, I, I deserve what I'm getting. But Lord, if there's any salvation left for me, please give me an option and I will check yes. He didn't do that. He said, man, I'm thirsty. Can I get some water? Don't you think if anybody could be persuaded to fall down at the, at the feet of the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ and beg for salvation, it would be somebody in hell. But he didn't right. said, I'm thirsty. It's all about me. Yeah, I'm not. I, yeah, I'm suffering. Yeah, I'm in torment. But before I bow down to you, I'll gnaw my tongue off. Revelations 15. Go read it. Pretty sure it's 15. We all deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. But God is God. And we are pathetic, sinful humans. And if he wants to pick a nation over all other nations and make them his own, I submit to his authority to do that. And if he wants to pick a family above all other families and all other people in the world, have every kindred tongue, people and nation and make them his own and sanctify them and justify them by the son of blood of the son, Jesus Christ, I will submit to that. Even though it's taboo, right? How well would this go over? In a church other than a primitive Baptist church. They would have already killed me. Right? But I don't care. Because this. Is my God. And when I back up. Way back here. And I realize what I would be without Christ. And I realize what I deserve. And then I move forward. And I begin to hear about mercy and grace. It makes a lot of sense to me. But when I back up way back here and I have a sense of entitlement and I think I've got a lot of goodness in me and I find myself feeling like I deserve an, uh, an offer and I, and, and, and I, I, you know, I'm worthy to be approached, to be forgiven. And then I move forward. Mercy and grace, they just don't ring right in my ears. It's an uncertain sound, Right. Those things may have been hard for you to hear, and I probably did a terrible job of delivering them to you. But one thing that we can't deny is there are some scriptures in the Bible about the way God feels about the wicked that are undeniable. 
And you should have felt that way about us. I hope that's been profitable to you.